So our job is to make sure that the law is followed. And if the case does in fact arise out of work and it does in fact occur during the course of employment, then that person is eligible for three benefits, medical, temporary, that's lost wages, and potentially permanency. My recommendation is that every entity who has a comp claim has to have a point person, someone that they know is going to direct all of these things and get involved with the TPA. They got to call them up and the defense attorney. And if you fall, I'll be beneath you. We'll take the night. Feel the force of the world tonight. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Call Your Broker, where we help to educate business owners, public officials, organization leaders, and consumers on all things insurance and risk management. This is Matthew Struck of Treadstone Risk Management. Today we gave Giovanni and John the day off, so let's get into it. This episode focuses on the legal defense side of workers' compensation claims, and we're lucky to be joined today via Skype by John Giney from Cape Heart Scatchard. John, thank you very much for taking the time to kind of sit down with us and, and talk for this episode. Thank you, man. I'm looking forward to it. So uh, really quickly, uh, the, the topic or the subject matter here is we're, we're kind of moving toward best practices for uh, defending workers' comp claims. And this is really targeted for employers, whether it's commercial employers or also public sector. But I want to get uh, everyone just kind of a baseline knowledge. I know you're, you're kind of a, uh, a household name in New Jersey workers' comp circles, but I want to make sure that anyone who tunes in, watches, or listens to this uh, episode, they get in a sense of who you are. So uh, really quickly, uh, give me a little bit of a background of Cape Heart, where you're located, and um, you know just some uh, particulars about the, the firm itself, and then also your background and how you got into workers' comp law and, and workers' comp defense. All right. Well, Cape Heart is a statewide firm, uh, well-known for workers' comp defense. Mm-hmm. Uh, we practice in every county, and uh, we are also statewide for litigation. The firm started, believe it or not, Matt, it traces its roots to 1876. Wow. And there, there were a, fellow, a couple of fellows named French and Richards who started the firm, and then along came another guy named Bradley, and then in 1932, Mr. Capehart actually joined the firm. And amazingly, Mr. Capehart continued to work at Cape Heart Scatchard mm-hmm. until 2008, and he did not pass away until 2012. He was 104 years old. Oh, wow. And he's really, in my opinion, he, he's really the the founder because he, he took a small firm and helped grow it to our present size of about 90 attorneys. Wow. Uh, and we're a full-service defense-oriented firm, and we do, as I mentioned, comp, litigation, labor, school, but we also do a lot of business work, and we represent banks, and we have commercial litigation. We have a great school board department, labor department. So really what I would say, one-stop, employer-oriented law firm. Okay. Now, I started with the firm in the early 80s, mm-hmm. and uh, you asked, how did I get in comp? It was just happenstance. They needed somebody <laughs> to do workers' comp, uh, and I needed – to to uh, fill in in comp and in litigation, and that's what I started out with. And gradually over time, comp became a bigger part of the firm, so I moved really 100% into comp. And in the 90s, I added the ADA expertise, mm-hmm. and then I added the Family and Medical Leave Act. But I would say 90% of my practice is devoted to 
workers' compensation for self-insureds, uh, third-party administrators, mm-hmm. and carriers. Okay. And so you're located out of, I think you said Mount Laurel, right? Um, do you have any other locations or is that the main location for the firm? Our, our, well, our main location is Mount Laurel. We have a satellite in Trenton. Uh, we also have smaller offices in Philly and New York. We have a very large New York practice um, in litigation, not comp. And we have a fairly large uh, Pennsylvania practice in litigation. Our comp practice is definitely New Jersey centered. Mm-hmm. And we have a very large presence in every county. We're the largest comp firm in New Jersey. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, no, that's uh, – I, I, I know uh, – there's a couple of towns you can't drive through, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah, um, I I think um, I think one of the the, the bad raps, and, and we've we've uh, in in this series of episodes, we've talked to a lot of professionals that work on um, kind of the claims investigation or kind of the mitigation side of the fallout once a claim happens. And I think that a lot of the professionals get a bad rap, right? That you're trying to um, that you're trying to not allow someone to get some benefits that they're actually entitled to. But that's not the case, right? I mean, you're you're essentially trying to distill the truth from what the actual circumstances are, right? Right. You know, it's workers' compensation, it's social legislation, and we understand that. Mm-hmm. But every case has to both arise out of work and occur during the course of work. Mm. And so, Matt, a lot of times people have incidents at work but that doesn't mean it's workers' comp. For instance, if if you were leaving the studio that you're in today mm-hmm. and you were working and you happen to put your coat on and you wrenched your shoulder, well, that would happen at work, but that doesn't mean it's workers' comp right. because it doesn't arise out of work. Right. So our job is to make sure that the law is followed. Mm-hmm. And if the case does, in fact, arise out of work and it does, in fact, occur during the course of employment, then that person is eligible for three benefits, medical temporary, that's lost wages, Mm -hmm. and potentially permanency. Mm -hmm. And then our job is to at least minimize the the payments and and pay the right amount, not overpay the case. Right, right. And and, uh, I've I've made the point before on, on, you know, previous episodes, every dollar saved, uh, you know, it, it has to come from somewhere, right? So particularly just talking about the public sector space, you know, a dollar saved that um, doesn't necessarily have to be paid out on one claim is available for maybe other claims that happen. It's also available for providing uh, payroll and essential services in other areas. So that's also, you know, kind of a myth that needs to be maybe better debunked or addressed is that just because we're trying to, you know, save money on a claim or make sure that it's accurately priced doesn't mean that we're skin flints. It means that we're trying to preserve dollars to be deployed elsewhere, right? Well, that's true. I mean, we represent a lot of employers and many are in the public sector. Mm -hmm. So, you know, probably 100 school boards, countless towns, mostly through joint insurance funds. Um, But we also represent some quasi-public institutions like Rutgers and um, universities like that. But the bottom line is it's taxpayer money. Mm -hmm. So when we save money on a case because the case is not compensable or there are legitimate defenses that reduce the value of the case, that money goes back to the public. Right. To, to that to the taxpayers right yeah that's a that's a that's a good point because all of the professionals really that help support in the public sector but also in the commercial sector but also all the professionals that help support public sector clients 
you know, they're they're essentially custodians of public money, right? They're both in terms of what they get compensated, but also how they deploy their expertise in order to benefit the organization. So that's a that's a really good point. I think that maybe gets missed too often or or kind of glanced over. Um, all right, so let's move on to some best practices. So, as an employer, um, whether it's public or or private uh, or commercial. What are some best practices that uh, an employer can put in place before a claim even happens to set them up to defend themselves, whether it be against a fraudulent claim or it's a claim that they're trying to just you know, mitigate the fallout on? Well, I always start off with this, Matt. I'm a big believer, as you know, in educating whoever it is, whether it's the town or whether it's the corporation, and we represent a lot of big corporations, but – You've got to understand workers' comp mm. to be effective in saving money. Right. And so I do recommend a lot of seminars. I know you've been to some of my seminars. Uh, you're one of these people who is devoted to learning everything you can mm-hmm. on many, many different subjects. And, and when you <laughs> dig deep into workers' comp and you train your supervisors and your managers, you are going to have a better experience in terms of losses. Yep. They know more about what to look for. Yep. Okay. They also know – what is or is not work-related. Right. In addition, I am a big believer, as you know, in using an employee accident form, a specific form, so that when, you know, if I report a claim, mm-hmm. uh, I don't simply write down, this is how it happened, mm-hmm. but I'm also answering certain questions that may help the employer defend a case, such as, have you ever had this back problem before right have you ever been a car accident before uh if it is a back or a spine or shoulder um the form might ask have you ever been to a chiropractor before oh you have been okay well why was that and who did you treat with so we have a form that we recommend to our public and private sector employers which helps them get the information that they need to win in workers comp or reduce costs Mm -hmm. and And I want to mention one thing that people don't know is we do not have depositions in workers' comp. So if you don't get the information early on, you may never get the information. Yeah, that's a huge point. It's not like – yeah, it's not like a criminal case where you can go out and and depose everyone and and anyone to try and dig up information. You really have a finite amount of time and avenues to get that discoverable information information into the case, right? It is much more streamlined. Yeah. So, you know, it's the difference between, let's say, a three-hour dinner at a very fancy restaurant and, you know, a much more fast, uh, let's say, fast meal that you're going to get without naming a restaurant. But you, you don't get a chance that you might have in another arena. You're not going to have uh, opportunity to do interrogatories that are detailed. You're not going to have depositions. You're not going to have really all the discovery that you get in other areas of litigation. And as I mentioned, I started out in litigation. Mm. So there's a big difference. That's why I recommend that our clients use an employee accident form. And uh, you've seen the form, I'm sure. I have. Yeah. And, and, I, and I, don't, uh, I don't keep it to myself. I share it with all, many, many, many people. 
and, and many employers. So that was going to be my next question is I, I have seen the form. Um, it is very extensive, which I appreciate also as a, <clears throat> as a risk manager. You know, the more information, the better that we have as well in terms of, you know, preventing future claims. Uh, but so in terms of getting access to that form, is it available on your website or is it something where uh, they, you know, anyone would have to go to one of your seminars in order to pick that form up? No, if they email me, I would forward it to them. Okay. There's no charge or anything. Um, I try and help employers generally. Obviously, I send it to all my own clients. Mm -hmm. And uh, we do a lot of things to help our clients and employers generally because workers' comp is so expensive, Matt. I I think you know this, but Mm -hmm. in in workers' compensation today in New Jersey, medical costs are the highest in the nation. Right. And they're getting so, higher. Yep. And they're going higher all the time. There's just there's 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 no balance to it. Right. Um, you know, a surgery that might have cost uh, thirty thousand dollars in two thousand might cost ninety thousand dollars in two thousand nineteen. <laughs> wow. And you're you're seeing bills today, I kid you not. We will get a bill for a two hour procedure called a fusion mm-hmm. on a spine mm-hmm. and the raw bill before being discounted could be $700,000 for oh two God. hours of work. Yep. And that's just the physician. Yeah. That's not the hospital, and that's not the anesthesiologist. So, you know, we're dealing with astronomical costs. So we have to take advantage of every opportunity we can to reduce those costs. That means detailed past medical history right from the start. Right, yeah. And that's uh, that's also a big point here is, you know, the, the numbers that we're talking about in the nuisance claims aren't that, that much, but even no. those can add up if you have a lot of them. But, uh, you know, some of these, you know, back and shoulder and knee claims, especially if it's a claim that knowing the circumstances shouldn't have had to be covered by the employer, you know, the the numbers are just boggling in terms of what the fallout can be. Um, and so I, I think the, the big uh, the big take home there is, you know, the, the preventative things that you can do ahead of time are going to be the highest ROI ones, even if you can't necessarily put your finger on it because, you know, some of these claims, if they do happen and you're able to thwart it, you don't know what the damage would have been, but you can kind of play, you know, that hypothetical game. Um, To the point, so, you know, Capehart does work in a number of states. Uh, New Jersey uh, infamously has a uh, track record of being a very liberal state, especially when it comes to workers' comp, right? So, do you see that trend continuing in terms of the the slant towards the employee in the workers' comp system? I do. I, I think that, you know, I've been in comp a long time. I started in the 80s. It's not really changed dramatically. Mm-hmm. It was always a petitioner we call petitioner on the petition on the claimant side and respond on the defense side Mm -hmm. it's always been a petitioner oriented system and you could say that about most states by the way Mm -hmm. it's not just jersey i would say that you know i hate to be political but you know you see the red state blue state yep yep you see that the, the the divide that occurs in the last few elections um, we are definitely a blue state, mm-hmm. and that carries over to, to, to the judges, and not just in comp, but our, our general philosophy in New Jersey. Right. So it tends to be a long-term trend, not a short-term trend, mm-hmm. and it has been this way for a very long time. Right. So, uh, yeah, so I, I think the you know most employers are just from the general dynamic, right? They're behind the eight ball from the start, right? So if they're using uh, if they're using an employee accident, um, you know, post accident form in order to 
provide as much information as possible. That's a good first start, um, you know, to kind of uh, venture into my realm, you know, appropriate safety training and, uh, you know, operational prudence in terms of trying to make the workplace as safe as possible and the jobs done as safely as possible. But inevitably, if you have a big enough organization, you're going to have a workers' comp claim. It's not a, yeah, it's not an, it's not an if, it's a when, right? Right. Uh, So once that does occur, immediately after, you know, having that application or that incident report in place is a good first step. Would you recommend any other best practices immediately after uh, that incident happens in order to kind of set the employer up uh, as best as possible? Two things I would recommend. First, I think that before these accidents happen, Mm -hmm. you want to, as an employer, have a relationship with doctors that you can work with who understand workers' compensation. Mm -hmm. They not only have to be good physicians from a technical standpoint, but they have to understand workers' comp because there are rules about workers' compensation that are different Mm -hmm. from health. So what I like to say is, Matt, workers' comp is contingent health care. What's the contingency? Well, it has to arise out of and occur during the course of employment. Right. So a physician also has to be willing to turn over some stones and figure out is, you know, John, is your knee problem really from bending over to pick up that briefcase or have you had it for a period of time? Mm-hmm. Oh, and a, are you a jogger? Right. And are there other things that you're doing? So you want to have an inquiring mind, as they say, as a physician. That means getting to know your physicians. If you're going to have a point person physician, let's say, and he, he or she is going to be the main physician, we call them occupational physician, who is going to see lots of your cases, whether you're a school or whether you're a corporation, you want to make sure you've met that person Mm -hmm. and dialogued a little bit about how do they feel about workers' compensation? Do they feel that, you know, we don't have time to ask questions, we're just going to treat them as if it's work-related because we're too busy? Right. Or do we fully understand what the jobs are like in, in your uh, either your public sector employment or your private sector employment. Have we been there? Have we visited? Are we willing to come and take a tour? So these are the things I strongly recommend. Get to know the point person physician, whatever you want to call that, whether it's an occupational physician or another name. Now, the other thing I strongly recommend, Matt, is that if you're going to get effective results, you have to get involved. So you can't just say, okay, well, we've got this uh, insurance company. I'm just going to turn it over to them. Yeah. And voila, you know, six months from now, this case is going to disappear. Yeah, set it and forget it. Yeah. <laughs> it's not ever going to happen because yeah. let me tell you the difference is the insurance company may be the best insurance company or the best TPA in New Jersey, hmm. but that doesn't mean they know anything about the individual involved. Right. You do. So, so my recommendation is that every every entity who has a comp claim has to have a point person, someone that they know is going to direct all of these things and get involved with the TPA. They got to call them up and the defense attorney. Mm-hmm. So right from the beginning, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. When Nordstrom has a claim, it's interesting. Um, it might be the day of the injury. There's no claim petition filed. Mm-hmm. The employee accident form may or may not have been filled out yet. Right. I often get a call that day and they will say, look, we want some advice on this case. You've been our attorney for 25 years. Uh, what steps should we take? What questions should we ask? Now, they're very involved, but they're not in New Jersey mm-hmm. and they don't have a TPA. 
in New Jersey. And they don't have carrier, but they are so well prepared. Mm. They're so involved and they do such a great job investigating claim right from the beginning that their experience is phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. Th- those are uh, those are two really good take homes is the idea of vetting the professionals that you're bringing in in order to do these things to make sure that they have the specific area of expertise that you need them uh, to be proficient in. And then the second element of it is it's a team sport, right? It's not any one individual that's going to completely change how your workers' comp program is functioning. Um, even you know, just bringing you or another attorney in at Capehart doesn't necessarily, you know, it's not necessarily the silver bullet. It really takes those, um, you know, the the group of professionals as well as the supervisors and the people on the ground that have the inside information. So those are two really, really good takeaways. The other thing I would ask you about is, so the majority of claims really end up just being medical only, right? The the employee gets a little bit of treatment and hopefully all well and good, they get back to 100% and they're back on the job. But uh, when this comes into the legal world is really when you get a claim petition and that typically centers around permanency, right? Some permanent disability that's associated with the, the injury. So what should an employer do once they get to that point where now they receive you know, the love note from the court or from the petitioner's attorney saying that they, they're claiming some level of permanency? Okay. So when we get the claim petitions, they either come with a motion for medical and temporary disability, mm-hmm. which would mean an emergent matter, my client is not getting paid uh, lost time wages, or my client is not getting paid uh, for certain hospital mm-hmm. bills. That's even more emergent. So the, the sometimes the claim petition will come in with an emergent matter, and that's a little different for us mm-hmm. than just a claim petition. If there is an emergent matter and there has been no medical paid and there's a dispute over that or no lost time, then what has to be done is literally that day the employer has to get on the phone with not only the carrier but the defense attorney because we have only 30 days not only to prepare a defense, but to get a doctor's report. Mm. So there's very little time to handle those cases. In the cases where there is no emergent issue, just a plain claim petition, then the the normal procedures should begin, which would be, um, you know, are we going to get a second opinion here if that's the issue? Uh, if it's just permanency, usually, Matt, you know, the treatment's still ongoing by the time we get the claim petition. When I started right. out in the practice, Lawyers might wait a year before they file the claim. They might wait until the treatment's done. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, we're getting claim petitions a week after the accident. That oh my never used to happen. Yeah. Why is that? Maybe the proliferation of lawyers out there. I don't know. But um, we were often getting the claim petition, and the accident happened a week or two ago. And now the issue for me as a defense attorney is whom should we be choosing to treat this person's spine issue. Mm -hmm. Whom should we be choosing to examine this person for his shoulder? So those are issues that we get involved with early on. And I must say, I've said this at many seminars, the choice of physician is the most important decision you're going to make, more important than the defense attorney, because if you go to a physician who's not familiar with comp, who doesn't understand comp, that doctor may treat for an extra year or two. Right. Uh, Some doctors... Uh, for instance, uh, pain management doctors. There are pain management doctors in New Jersey who strongly believe in opiates, mm-hmm. and those cases are going to be ten times more expensive than the ones who don't believe necessarily as in opiates as a first line of treatment. Right. So 
in the beginning, I tend to focus heavily on advising the client on, you know, choice of physicians, mm-hmm. um, who is the best doctor to go to, and then trying to give them a sense of where is this case headed, as you mentioned, for cost, final cost, we call that the reserve or the exposure. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, and so uh, that's also a good distinction to make in terms of the choice of the, the physician is uh, in New Jersey, you have the – as an employer, you have a right to direct care, right? Correct. Um, that's not always the case in every other state, right? So yeah. in some states, it's maybe a predetermined panel. In other states, the employee gets to seek their own care for a certain period of time. So that's also a, an important distinction. If you're an employer who's listening or watching to this from watching this from another state that's not New Jersey, that's something that you're going to want to know ahead of time because that's also going to dictate how you're you know proactively handling those claims. So that's that's a really good point. Um, all right. So in terms of, I, I have kind of a two-parter here. In terms of fraud in the workers' comp uh, arena, would you say that it's pervasive? Um, or is it something that the the system seems to have a pretty decent handle on? And the follow up question to that is, what are some of your red flags if you know if the employer um, or the claims professionals see these things pop up during the course of treatment or immediately following the injury? What are some of those red flags that might point to you know potentially fraudulent claim? Okay, great question. And I'm going to start with the second part first, and then sort of answer the first part as we go along. You're going to tear it. I love it. <laughs> so, so, so th- these are some good examples of what constitutes fraud. And, and just so y- your audience knows, um, the fraud issue in New Jersey is different. Mm-hmm. We do not have to go to a prosecutor. We have our own fraud statute built into the law. Mm-hmm. So we actually handle the fraud case in comp court. Now, uh, classic fraud. I'm out on workers' compensation. I'm being paid either full salary if it's a board of education or a police department or I'm getting paid 70% of my wages. Mm-hmm. And so maybe I'm making $1,000 a week. I'm getting paid $700 tax-free, but the employer hires surveillance and the surveillance company determines that I'm actually working. And maybe I'm working at Panera Bread or I'm working for a construction company while I'm supposed to be out of work unable to work. That's right. fraud. Right. Now, how, 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 how common is that? Surprisingly, we, we probably have about 30 cases in our office right now with that okay. situation. Um, the next example is you file an accident claim and you work for maybe a, a big box superstore and you say, I was injured in aisle four on just at 11 a.m. Mm-hmm. And unknown to me, there's security video and it shows I was never in aisle four on that particular day and maybe I didn't even come to work that day. Right. Uh, right. Or they have video of me never leaving the corner of the store far away from that. That's called fraud in the accident. That's mm. less common than the other example. In other words, the accident never happened. Mm. You fabricated the accident. Uh, I don't see that as often, to be okay. honest with you. That's less common. Uh, the third red flag uh, is very common. I hate to say this, but I have a back claim. I bring a claim saying I was lifting, you know, uh, something heavy at work and I had severe back pain radiating down to my legs. And the doctor says, John, have you ever had this problem before? And I say, I've never had any back problem my whole life. Right. And then I see another doctor and I say the same thing. And then lo and behold, a little bit of discovery comes, family doctor records, chiropractor records, get produced, and indeed, I have been treating 
for a back problem for five years fairly frequently. Right. That happens surprisingly large number of occasions in in my experience. Right. Um, and that's the last, and the I'm last sorry one. to cut you off, but so that's like the the impetus for that is really because it doesn't hit the health insurance, right? So there might be some out of pocket cost that the employee is trying to avoid or a deductible uh, or a co-insurance, right, to kick it into the workers' comp arena as opposed to pay through their personal health insurance, right? Yeah, I would say with all with all of them, with all the four I'm going to give you, that's a, that's one of the incentives, okay? Mm-hmm. Another incentive, when you're out on workers' comp, you're getting paid. When you're out on FMLA, it's unpaid leave, right, okay? Right. Um, but the, now the last example is, you know, this is where there's a, a red line here, okay? Exaggeration. Mm. everybody, you could argue, exaggerates a little bit or most people exaggerate a little bit in order to get that permanency. And that's not fraud. OK. Right. Um, and that's that's subjective. Is this person exaggerating the level of pain? Um, you know, they say they they can't golf anymore, but they did golf once or twice over the summer. Yeah. Ju- judges understand that there's a certain amount of exaggeration. And we do, too. Right. When the exaggeration takes a different slant and I can't get out of bed. I haven't been able to get out of the wheelchair and then you find somebody bowling or jogging, that would probably be considered fraud by Mm -hmm. a lot of judges and there are plenty of cases like that out there too. Right. So the answer to your question, is it rampant? I would say it's easier to commit fraud in a state like New Jersey where you don't have depositions Mm -hmm. and you don't have much discovery than it is in some states. It is it is certainly not a one percent. It's way higher than that. Now, okay. no one has the studies on it, but we always have many dozens, if not scores of fraud cases in our office. Um, and it's a fairly substantial percentage. Okay. And so uh, that points just to the fact that you really need to, you can't just lean on the system uh, to help kind of root that stuff out, right? And the state does have, uh, you know, fraud investigators at, I believe it's out of the Department of Banking and Insurance, but um, you know, the the system alone isn't necessarily going to root out a lot of those things. And especially in the case of a self-insured employer, you know, those dollars are coming out of your pocket. And so if you can do everything that you can on your end in order to make that, you know, appreciable change, and like you said, it's it's greater than 1%. So you're going to get oh, yeah. some ROI on it, right? Um, yeah. And, I, and just so you know, the, the New Jersey Fraud Bureau, um, there's a limit to how many cases that they can handle. They're handling all kinds of fraud outside of workers' comp. Yep. They're, they're handling fraud that's taking place with car accidents and everything else. New Jersey comp can handle its fraud quite well within the bureau itself, within the division, because we have our own statute. Right, right. Uh, okay, so uh, something that's a little bit more of a kind of pointed, uh, you know, uh, uh, pointed question in terms of the execution of, uh, you know, getting out from under some of these claims. Uh, a lot of times I've heard you talk about and a lot of times I've advocated for clients that we try and get out from under a permanency claim using a Section 20 settlement. So just really quickly, you know, what is that? What are the advantages of getting out under a Section 20? And that is that something that's just germane to New Jersey or does it also apply to other states? It does apply to other states. Many states have the equivalent. New York has Section 32, very mm-hmm. similar. It's a way to resolve a case, Matt, where you're really admitting nothing. Mm. You're you're giving a lump sum payment to someone, and that person cannot reopen the case. And that's a hallmark in New Jersey. You can generally reopen percentage award cases mm-hmm. if you're worse. Right. Um, and we see a lot of reopeners. Right. But you can't reopen a Section 20. So it puts that case 
in the grave. It's done. Okay. Um, but you have to have two main avenues to get it. You mm-hmm. have to have an issue of liability, genuine issue of liability. Are you really liable for this claim mm-hmm. or causation? Mm-hmm. Now you'll notice when we went back to our discussion about having employee accident form and doing some diligence about prior chiropractic care, prior car accidents, when you get that information, you will often find that there there is an issue of causation. This person mm-hmm. already had a problem with his shoulder or his neck or his back or his knee, and that may help you get a Section 20. Right. So all of the things you do as an employer at the start of the case, while it may not seem like it's a big deal, may help you get the Section 20 at the end of the case. Oh, yeah. And, and that Section 20 is huge if you can get it because, like you said, you know, in most states – Every two years, they can refile if they've, you know, had some worsening of the disability or the injury um, or the lingering effects. And so, you know, that creates a huge, what we call insurance, a tail on that claim that can end up being significant in terms of the the amount of money associated with that. So that's a huge tool in the arsenal, so to speak, or in in the, the tool belt to be able to at least come out with some kind of finite amount of money that that claim is going to cost as opposed to having that long-term legacy. Um, all right, so a little bit more into the kind of uh, entertaining aspect of, of this arena. Um, what are a couple of the strangest claims or, or maybe just kind of the weirdest claims that you've come across um, or maybe the weirdest circumstances regarding a workers' comp claim and, and a strange outcome? Well, I could talk for a long time on that one. I'm going to give you two, all right? Yep. So one case I'm going to talk about briefly because it just goes to show how lack of attention to a claim can lead to massive losses of money. So years ago, a few years ago, Matt, I I was uh, contacted by a client mm-hmm. and a TPA, and they said, we have a problem with this case. We have been paying four years of lost time benefits <laughs> to a woman wow. who has Lyme disease and um, we are really seeing no change. There's no way to end it. And now we're paying for family therapy because it's affecting her relationship with her family members and depression. And it, it, it seems like and she hadn't filed a claim petition yet. We're still in the early phase of the case. Sounds medical like a, Sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> Four to $500,000 into the case. I get the phone call and uh, I thought, okay, well, uh, have we done any surveillance on this person? And the the people on the phone said, not yet. Okay, so, uh, and how much do you know about how the tick bite occurred? Mm-hmm. Well, there was really not a lot of great detail at that point on it. But um, what I suggested in this case is that, number one, we hire the best doctor, who happened to be in West Orange, New Jersey, uh, who really understands Lyme disease, okay? Mm-hmm. Um and then the other thing is I recommended surveillance. Well, within about a week, that case was about done. So mm-hmm. what happened on the surveillance was, I'll mention this first, is uh, they did some surveillance, social media searches, uh-huh. which is awesome. And they found that this woman's complaints of fatigue, et cetera, were quite understandable. She had run 26 half marathons in the last two years, <laughs> quite, quite a healthy number of uh, half marathons. Yeah. That's exhausting, needless to say. Um, she had been saying that she couldn't do things, she couldn't leave the home, et cetera. Uh, the other thing is I sent this, this woman to the doctor in West Orange and he said, he got to really pinned the case down right from the beginning. He said, what happened? Well, she was on a field trip. She got to the bus in the morning, got on with the students. Uh, she was sort of like a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, she drove to the museum with the kids. She went into the bathroom, her colleague teacher 
said, oh, you have a tick? Looks like you have a tick on your neck. And she said, oh my goodness, I do. She then bagged the tick and she went to her doctor later that day. And then she went to a series of doctors who were in Lyme disease experts and they didn't take much history. And they said, okay, well, you feel like you're more tired, you're depressed, you're fatigued. Okay, well, it's from this, you have Lyme disease. Now this went on for four years. Now the doctor I hired, he spent a little bit of time and said, are you sure you didn't have the tick on your neck when you got on the bus? Hmm. She said, no. Now, by the way, if she had had it on her neck when she got on the bus, she would have had it at home and it would not have been work related. Right. She said, no, I did not. Okay. And you're sure that after about an hour and a half, a colleague told you when you got to the museum that you had a tick and you bagged it. Yes, that's exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. uh, the doctor wrote a report. Now, I don't do a lot of Lyme disease cases, but I read his his articles afterwards and he was right. He said, you have to have a tick attached for at least 36 hours before the serum, it basically engorges, the, the tick engorges. Right. Not to be, t t you know, too ugly on this thing, but the, <laughs> the tick engorges and then a serum is communicated from the tick to the person that's mm -hmm. the Lyme disease. It can't happen unless there's 36 hours of attachment. So we got the report. I said, I have good news and I got bad news. This case is over. But we're never going to get the money back. Yeah. I mean, they had paid four hundred to five hundred thousand dollars in lost wages and massive medical bills, hospitalizations all over the place. Wow. Therapy. It was never work related. So yeah. that was one of the strangest cases I've ever had because it only took a, a week to figure out dispositively it wasn't work related. Yep. And she never filed a claim petition. Yep. Yeah. OK. Now, the other case was also I thought it was unusual because. Very seldom, Matt, do we get phone calls from the attorney general. So I was at my desk, again, a few years ago, mm -hmm. and I get a phone call from the attorney general, and I'm trying to figure out what is going on here. And she says, I need your help on a workers' comp case. And I said, be glad to help you. And she says, it's your case. And I said, really? It's our case. She said, well, we have a fella who we think fabricated his workers' comp claim against a very large car dealership in central Jersey. <laughs> And she said, this is the name of the case. And I said, yes, that is my case. Really? It's been fabricated. Well, that's interesting because we have paid for two back surgeries <laughs> and he's out on workers' compensation and we are well into the $380,000 on this case. Wow. And she said, well, here's the story. Um, this particular fellow that you are handling the claim for um, was while out on workers' compensation working at an auto shop in Monmouth County and he went into the the auto shop and he said, look, I got to work under the table. I'm out on workers compensation. So you can't say anything. Mm -hmm. I can't have any record of payments um, because if my carrier finds out, I'm going to be prosecuted for fraud. And they said, well, that's fine because we have criminal records ourselves. We're not going to tell anybody. <laughs> so this actually happened. So the guy continues to work for weeks and weeks and weeks with this auto shop. Yeah. He also is quite a computer buff. And, and when the guys who run the shop weren't around, he figured out where the owner's money was. He tapped into the account and then he diverted it to his girlfriend's account and <laughs> oh then he left. Oh my God. Oh my God. Now, bear in mind what I said before. There's no record of this guy ever working there. Yeah. Okay? These guys then go to the prosecutor. Eventually they get to the, uh, to the state pro prosecutor and they say, we got scammed by this guy. And not only that, he committed workers' comp fraud. <laughs> so the attorney general said to me, I need your help in two areas. Number one, I can't prove that this guy worked 
there because he says he never worked there mm-hmm. and there's no record of him being paid. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then the other thing is they they say, the auto guys say, that he admitted he faked the accident by pretending to fall in the parking lot. Wow. So I said, okay, like I got an idea on the one. I said, if I can get prior family doctor records, that might help you because there might be a reference to the fall. So we had about $5,000, 5,000 pages of records. I went through every single record and not one of them had a reference to a family doctor. But somewhere along page 4,000, there was one record that had a doctor's name at the bottom copied on it. I sent a subpoena to that Mm -hmm. doctor, just a lark. Well, came back. That was the family doctor. And he was from 40, 50 miles north of, of the location because this guy had apparently moved. Mm-hmm. He was in Middlesex County when the accident happened. And it did indeed say that he had fallen in his apartment and had injured his back and needed surgery. But that was six months before he faked the work accident. Wow. So I was able to give that to the prosecutor. The other thing that happened was I have a really talented attorney, young woman named Katie Geist, who's a partner. Mm-hmm. And and I said to her, look, I know you're great on the computers. I want you to do a social media search and see if you can find something on this guy. Mm-hmm. And she said, look, I'm not going to do any better than they did on the so- social media because he blocks his Facebook there. I can't get anything. But give me give me an hour or two. Mm-hmm. So she just started playing around and she somehow I guess she she Googled his name. Lots of names came up around the country, but she she narrowed it down to about six or seven people. She then found some review of an AMC movie theater that uh, the this guy had written saying how horrible the, the theater was and how bad the food was, et cetera, yeah. and how bad the movie was. And then she, she jumped from that review into his Facebook. Hmm. Now, she got into his Facebook. He was a prolific writer, let's say. Mm. And in there, he had a program called Four, Four Square. Have you heard of that, Matt? Yep. Yeah, you can check in different locations, let people know where you're at. Yep. Guess where he was checking in every single day for several months? Oh, right at the garage. Yep. At the garage. Yep. He was at the garage. I'm at the garage. It's 2 <laughs> o'clock. I'm working on a car. I'm at the garage. And he named the garage. And we turned it over to the prosecutor. Mm. And the attorney general got a conviction for fraud. And this guy went to jail for wow. several years. Wow. So that was an unusual case, to say the least. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. No, And that's... Uh, that's that's a good point too because um, like you said at the onset, you don't necessarily want to approach these things from the assumption that you're covering the claim or that it's a covered cr- claim, right? You do want to make sure that the employee is taken care of because in most cases, it's a valid work comp claim that's going to be covered under workers' comp. But in those situations where, like you talked about in both of these cases, that's now hundreds of thousands of dollars where it's nearly impossible to get all of that money back or any of it back, right? Um, Right. No, we will never get that back. The judge ordered it, restitution, but – Practically speaking, this gentleman is never going to. He's out of jail now, but he's never going to pay that money back. Yep, yep. And the other thing, I agree with you, Matt. Most cases are legitimate. However, the thing that I am shocked about in this case is we would never in a million years have thought that this man faked a fall in the parking lot. He right. actually found the part of the parking lot that had no cameras. No cameras. Yep. yep. And who would have thought that someone would go to those ends literally – lie down in a parking lot, scream in pain, get taken by an ambulance to a hospital, get two surgeries, mm. and then 
stay out of work for months and months and months and months. Mm -hmm. Who would have thought that? So I throw that out there because you would be surprised, and I certainly was surprised, about some of the claims. Right. Yeah. No, I'd imagine we could go on for (laughs) hours about some of the claims that you've seen. Um, Really quickly here to wrap up, the one thing that I ask everyone is – um, what are you currently reading, listening to, watching? Um, and it can run the gamut, anything from professional development to even, you know, personal entertainment. Well, reading, uh, of course, I, I love The New Yorker. Okay. Uh, I love The Wall Street Journal. But the book I'm reading right now is uh, by Candace Mallory. It's called The Hero of the Empire. It is the early life of Winston Churchill. All right. Fascinating book. One of my favorite characters to read about. In history, I love I love biography and I love history. Awesome. Um, in terms of watching, I can't wait for Game of Thrones final season. Okay. Uh, I like everyone else, probably in America. Yeah. Uh, the other the other show that I really enjoyed, I love I love Netflix, and okay. uh, just recently wrapped up Fauda, F A U D A. I haven't heard it of is that a one. Show about relationships between uh, Palestinians and Israelis. Wow. Uh, and half of the actors are Israeli, half of the actors are Palestinians. The word uh, Fauda means chaos in Arabic. Fantastic show. Not many people know about it, but the Netflix uh, crew, those of us who really enjoy Netflix are Mm -hmm. catching on and there's a growing interest in it. There's a new season coming up. So catch up to Fauda, Matt. Awesome. Yeah, no, I'm going to have to check that out. That definitely sounds interesting. So um, the other thing that I would make a um, plug for here is – uh, Capehart has a number of fantastic blogs and regular newsletters that you put out. So really quickly, where can people find more information about Capehart Scatchert and um, sign up for those those blog offerings that you guys have? Probably the best way, I would say, is to email either Chloe Smith, that's Smith at Capehart, that's C-A-P-E-H-A-R-T dot com, or Carol Wright. C-W-R-I-G-H-T at kpart.com. They have a list of the many blogs that we have. That will also allow you to, once you're on the blog, to find out about upcoming webinars, which we do a lot, and seminars, which we do a lot, as you know, Matt. Yep. You're, yep. you're one of the regulars. Yep. Um, we do four major seminars a year in, in South, Central, North, and then we do one in Atlantic City. Awesome. All right, fantastic. Yeah, uh, people should definitely look that look up that information or uh, contact Chloe or Carol and and uh, get linked up with the blogs and um, all the webinars are free, which are fantastic and and it's great information whether you're an insurance and um, you know claims professional or if you're uh, you know an employer. So I, I love that there's there's value for anyone who who ends up logging on to those. So. John, I want to say thank you very much. I appreciate your time. I know you got to get out of here. Um, we we got to do another another one of these sometime because uh, it was a, I, it was a blast, Matt. Thank you. I appreciate it, John. Have a good one. Take care now. And that's a wrap. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Call Your Broker. We hope you got something out of it. If you did, please, please, please hit the like button, subscribe, leave a comment or a review. If you have specific questions, you can always reach out to us directly at either treadstonerisk.com or lbanj.com. See you next time. And always, this is a reminder to call your broker. We'll take the-